0: Welcome to the Magnificast. I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, where I work on media and religion, and I avoid writing my uh, dissertation.
1: I'm Matt. I'm a professor at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I teach uh, media studies, cultural studies, I don't know, some other stuff too. I can't think of a joke this week because uh, I feel too uh, beat down and tired from my everyday life. <laughs> that's the joke <laughs> <laughs>
0: well uh starting out behind it this week <laughs> nah it's all right it's good. real real hashtag uh monday motivation over here um, well quick side note before we get into anything um there's a really cool podcast called revolutionary left radio And this is a a good way to boost boost your spirits, Matt, because I think this was really fun. Um, You can find them at at Rev Left Radio on Twitter, and you should all listen to it. It's really great. Uh, It's great all the time. But the host, Brett, invited us on to talk about Christianity and socialism this week, so it's especially great this time. Um, The episode that dropped right before us is about the Zapatistas. So working through that catalog is really cool. Um, basically, if for some reason you can't get enough of us here, and we know that you can't, uh, you can catch us over there. Um, and shout out to Zach, by the way, who's a mutual listener of both of the podcasts who connected us up and encouraged us to get together. That was very nice of him to think about.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Red Left Radio is my, my, my new favorite podcast. Um, <laughs> I was is like very just good. Yeah, I was just listening to like old episodes from My Brother and My Brother and Me, and now I've uh, switched to something that's uh, <laughs> a little more highbrow.
0: It's <laughs> um, a pretty low bar, though, in terms of brow, yeah, brow size. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's true. Go and listen to every episode of Revolutionary Left Radio. It's super good. Uh, they've always got good guests, and Brett is a good interviewer, for sure. What I really like... One of my favorite parts about every episode is the very beginning, and he just asks people, like, what their political tendencies are, and that's super interesting. I love hearing about things people think and, like, ways they align with their politics. Yeah, um, it is really good. Yeah, he asked Dean Nine. We were just like, I don't know. <laughs> <Not too obvious>. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. Um, So listen to that. We'll uh, retweet it and stuff when it comes out.
0: Yeah, he also has a uh, very adorable children um at the very beginning, just telling telling you how great the podcast is, and that's a good touch. I wish that we had very adorable children capable of uh speaking. Someday when Lewis is old enough, we gotta re record this intro.
1: Yeah, that's right. Right now he I don't know, it wouldn't work out. He's not he's he talks a lot, just you know, doesn't not very articulate still at this point. <laughs> Soon. Soon. This week we're talking with Heath Carter. Uh, he's the author of the book Union Made, Working People, and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago. It's a cool book that tells the story of how uh, unions, minorities, and radicals challenged the established church and encouraged a pro-labor understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Thanks to Oxford University Press, by the way, for sending us review copies. They sent us the nice hardback copies, even. It's nice, good, sturdy sturdy book.
0: Quality book. Yeah. Books you don't want to move.
1: That's <laughs> that's right but before we get to that uh we've got the usual podcast business to sort out here are some of those uh hot itunes reviews right off the presses they're, uh, they're burning my hands are so hot <laughs> hit me with need- some of
0: them hot reviews man
1: need to wear oven mitts uh okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> blow our- on them
0: first though i don't i don't want to get burned <laughs>
1: um <laughs> okay so uh, the first review comes from a uh, user name Arnuccio. Uh, this is yeah.
0: We we know him.
1: We know him. What up? Shout out to Arnuccio. <laughs> uh, all right, he gave us a 5 out of 5 star review and the title of this review is is just entitled this. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so this user writes Dean and Matt do an excellent job of discussing the nuances and challenges of being a Christian leftist in our contemporary world. I cannot recommend their work highly enough. Me either. Thank you. That's
0: good. (laughs) Something you guys have in common.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right. uh, The next review is by username. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) This is the best username. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, is by username Lacroix Osteen. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> hey, that just you? This is another pseudonym of you. Now I don't think so. This is just like uh, this is just the dialectic embodied uh, coming out in the best way. Uh, so Lacroix Osteen wrote a review uh, entitled "Came for the Pizza Ghosts, Stayed for the Christian Leftism." Five out of five <laughs> star reviews. <laughs> yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, okay, this user writes. I initially found this podcast uh, researching quality resources on the intersections of pizza and ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, our SEO is actually just that. Search pizza and ghosts in Google and our uh, podcast comes up. Uh, I think that's what
0: we're doing wrong, actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, Matt is an expert in this field. That is true. Just 100%. The reflection on Christianity and leftist politics was a little surprise. Can we just back
0: up for a second? Like, I don't think people understand how much of an expert you are in this field. Like, I made a joke about that an episode or two ago, but uh, for people that don't know, like, A, Matt takes pizza extremely seriously to the point of, uh, (laughs) like, you know, like tossing that crust up in his own kitchen, swirling it around, experimenting with pizza, real pizza aficionado. Uh, And secondly, Matt has a real-life interest in ghost hunters. Like, he's written papers (laughs) and presented them about ghosts and what ghost hunters do. So, like, yes. For real, though. Expert on pizza ghosts.
1: Uh, And no one even laughed at me. Like, it was like a serious (laughs) paper. Uh, I mean, they laughed because there were jokes, but they didn't laugh because it was, like, a weird thing. (laughs) It's weird how little of that actually comes out in this podcast, but okay. Okay. <laughs> here we go uh the user continues matt and dean <laughs> matt and dean bring most welcome wit reflection and dope beats to the life of faith and action getting the notification that there's a new magnificast episode is a highlight of my week uh it's rare that people talk about the beats but the beats are very good they're good I beats, like the, quality beats. I like quality beats 10 out of 10 we beats. got the beats oh my gosh uh they're good beats okay uh <laughs> The next reviewer uh, is uh, username Ball State freshman, I guess from Ball State. What's up? What's up, Ball State? I think <laughs> it's in Indiana. I'm not really sure, but like I've never well. heard of the
0: Ball State.
1: Well, it's like a a college there, you know, in the Ball State, which is Indiana, because they got so many just ba- like bouncy balls over there.
0: <laughs> that was a dangerous qualification. Well done. Yeah, I made sure to keep this family friendly <laughs> yeah. for the for the you youth did group. It pg parental guidance required for this podcast (laughs) that's right
1: okay they gave us five out of five stars the title is marry me sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) well is it a-r-r-y or e-r-r-y
1: uh actually m-a-r-y like the name
0: oh okay maybe their name very clever
1: uh yeah you're right okay so (laughs) ball state freshman says my partner my partner and i are obsessed we just listened to the latest episode on a road trip as a leftist agnostic Episcopalian who talk about talk about qualifications Um, (laughs) and liberation slash political theology nerd this is a podcast I wish I would have listened to early don't take it wrong my partner suggests way too many podcasts for me to take them all seriously (laughs) Uh, like smiley blushing face emoji that's nice
0: (laughs) Uh, that's a good demographic I feel like Uh, agnostic Episcopalian liberation political theology all the words are good words
1: Uh, yeah for sure it's good. Those are all good places to be. Episcopalianism's all right. I'm into that.
0: I got married in an Episcopal church. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, it was the same church where Betty Ford of Gerald Ford fame <laughs> tragically <laughs> uh, was buried.
1: Uh, that's interesting. Did they make you something? Did they make you pay extra for that?
0: No, uh, I went there. Um, so I'm Catholic now, but uh, here's a here's a little little dark past, little skill in my closet. I wasn't always Catholic. So <laughs> one time I went to the Episcopal Church, and uh, my partner and I, Emily, uh, we got married there. She grew up Lutheran, and I grew up Catholic, and then we both went to this Evangelical school, and didn't know what was going on. So we went to the Episcopal Church as a happy little medium, I guess. It was nice. Yeah.
1: yeah. That is nice. It's like uh, Episcopalianism is like Catholicism, but like not as serious.
0: Yeah, no popes, Uh, though all of my family complained about how long it was, and they all grew up Catholic. Uh, So (laughs) that's probably probably the comfort for me. It was just boring enough to be comfortable, uh, the discomfort for them. (laughs) Uh, That's good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it with Heath.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, Matt,
1: what have you been up to this week? Um, Again, still just like drowning in like classwork. Um, I'm so busy. I'm teaching too many classes. I wish it would stop. I can't wait for the semester to be over. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, Besides that, uh, I've been arguing with uh, racist family members on Facebook. So just a real, um, just being a real activist over here, really getting into it. Fight, fighting (laughs) the good fight. (laughs) That's about it. I don't know. Uh, It's not been a great, not been a great week so far. (laughs) (laughs) dean <laughs> what are you been doing man
0: <laughs> uh nothing too exciting i like worked a bunch at the coffee shop this week uh kind of unexpectedly um which isn't a bad thing i actually really like where i work my boss is very cool um and we roast coffee beans and everything so it's the real deal so i like that a lot but uh besides that nothing reading books i read Heath's book this oh yeah week, and that Me was too. really it was fun. good <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we both read it that that's that helps. i know it's it's, uh, it's very good <laughs> uh heath what have you been up to
2: Uh yesterday is my busy teaching day teaching uh two classes right now um and then you know before that over the weekend i was in actually in nashville north carolina hanging out with some friends for uh one of my friends turned 40 over the weekend so we went out and Hiked in the mountains a little bit and hung out in uh, the city where he he teaches. So, trying to just get back on my feet here. At, uh, you know, it's a normal week in the office. So, trying to trying to catch up with a weekend away. That sounds
1: cool. Sounds like a good weekend for sure. All right. Well, where we usually start in these conversations, Heath, is um, just like. Could, could you give us, like, an elevator pitch for what your book is about so we can get um, all of our listeners on the same page? Just maybe, like, a little bit of a summary about uh, what what your book sure. does and, like, why it is important to you?
2: Yeah. Um, the book is about Christianity and labor in the in the Gilded Age, so the late 19th century. And, um, you know, it really emerged out of a paper that I wrote in graduate school where I was trying to I, – I had run across this um, – article in my master's program where it was about a, a Wisconsin minister's union, and this was a fundamentalist newspaper, and I was like, okay, and the state of Wisconsin had, pre- had prevented these ministers from forming a union, so it was an op-ed, I'm starting to read it, I'm, I'm anticipating the editor of the paper really going after the state, um, you know, for stopping these ministers from forming a union, and instead, the the editor of the paper was like, it served those ministers right for doing the devil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and after I you know it's one of those things where you you know you're going through the sources and you run across something like that and it piqued my curiosity because I was like you know well how does that work I mean you know a lot of these evangelical churches surely they have painters in them and they have blacksmiths factory workers what's going on I mean if you got your ministers where uh, the 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 clergy are opposed to unions or you know how, how does that play and so when I got to Notre Dame. I thought I would just try to test this little, you know, qu- question of mine out, and uh, wrote my first ever seminar paper in grad school on the Pullman strike, and was really looking for any evidence of more than just you know whatever the ministers had had to say about the strike, and I really lucked out. One of the main churches in Pullman during that strike, which is a you know huge strike in Chicago, kind of epic strike, not just for the city but for the whole country, um, lucked out in that one of the big churches that was in the neighborhood is still around. It's now a black church. It's, uh, started, founded as a Dutch Presbyterian church, Pullman Presbyterian. Now it's a black church on the South side of Chicago and, uh, just rolled in there one day and, and asked the the minister there if they still had the records from around the time of the strike. And he said, let me look. So he went into his file cabinet and just like started pulling stuff out and pulled out this record book. And, uh, He's like, okay, here you go, first ever record book, 1882 to, <laughs> up to like 1900, just sitting in a file cabinet wow. <laughs> in his office. And uh, so I started looking through this thing, and sure enough, um, you know, the, the pastor of that church had railed against the strike, um, and, and so I had expected that maybe there would have been some disruption, and sure enough, you know, turn the pages of this minute book, 1894 left, 1894 left, 1894 left, 1894 left you know, and so... Um, that was kind of how this whole thing started. And I, and I figured out there's more of a story here about the relationship between church and labor um, than maybe what people in the past have written about, you know, past accounts have often focused on what did ministers have to say about the unions? Um, but I was really interested in, in if we're going to look at, you know, what, how did the churches respond to the labor movement, uh, taking the views of working people and lay people really seriously. And uh, in doing that, found kind of a whole nother story. So that's that's sort of the the way that the book is is framed.
0: Um, Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story, actually, the way that you tell it. Uh, And I like that historian's intuition, I guess, to figure out, you know, surely this would have caused some kind of disruption. That's a really great (laughs) idea. Um, And maybe we could talk actually a little bit more about how you like pulled this book together. Because as I was reading it, I mean, I'm not a historian at all. Uh, I I have a master's in the history of philosophy and it is not the same (laughs) thing. Um, So uh, yeah, like... What made you want to take this research on, apart from just like, I don't know, intellectual curiosity? And maybe could, could you talk a little bit about like something, I don't know, what, what was like the most surprising part of it as you were putting it together?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, you know, when I started, so when I wrote that paper about Pullman, part of what I was struck by was that what sort of did start off as a kind of just intellectual curiosity and trying to figure out a puzzle um as I was reading the sources and and getting further and further into the research for this book it was just a it's I got swept up in it I mean it's just so fascinating to me and you know as as I was in my mid-20s probably when I started this book and and I uh you know had never read stuff like this before and I think you know Um, part of what I try to indicate in the introduction is how I I really do believe that one of the distinctives of the first Gilded Age, some people say we live in a second Gilded Age, that one of the distinctives of the first is this kind of freewheeling debate and conversation among American Christians about the moral status of capitalism. And I, I think just finding, stumbling upon that debate and finding this kind of rich trove of source material that was bringing all sorts of perspectives to bear on economic life that you know I think are harder to find in uh, in the in the 21st century. And I started writing this book before even the Great Recession. And so you know, thinking about where are these voices, I think you're starting to see some more of them now. But um, you know, and and I think that the the thing that uh, it, it was really developed around series of conflicts. I mean, one of the things that's great about Chicago, I, I lived in Chicago when I wrote this book, Chicago has just got this amazing history in the late 19th century of labor conflict and also of religious innovation. And so it wasn't hard to find, you know, every 10 years or so the military is in the streets of Chicago trying to suppress, uh, working class revolts, uh, or, or uprisings. And, um, you know if it wasn't too hard you start nosing around in in those moments and you find a lot of chatter um in in church circles and a lot of debates I mean, that was what was really interesting is that you know people picked up on what did the ministers say what did they have to say you know but mm-hmm. finding the other side of that um i think one of the things that was most surprising so one of the times when the military came home to chicago was in 1877 during these kind of famous railroad riots that swept across the country started on the east coast made their way to Chicago in July of 1877, and there's this kind of epic fight um, in what's now Pilsen on the near southwest side of Chicago um, where the police and workers meet at the 16th Street Viaduct and violent conflict erupts. The police are armed with guns. They fire into the crowd, empty their rifles, run away, reload, come back, fire into the crowd again. At the end of the day, um, dozens of workers are dead. No police have been even injured. That Sunday, um, in Protestant churches across the city, there's a kind of glorification of this violence, and even a wishing that there were more workers had been killed because it would have served them right. That's what one of the Methodist pastors said. And you know, I, I, by the time I got to that part in the book, or the research for the book, I kind of expected that uh, a minister might stand up on Sunday morning and say what this fellow at Ada Street Methodist had said—that you know it would have been better if more workers had been killed—but um, would have taught those. Lawless beings, the value of a human life. What I hadn't expected, and this was one of the big surprises, was that working people in that church cheered him on. Um, the, the paper reported that there was a sensation that went through the crowd and, and all, all but one person were just sort of like rooting this guy on. And I started to look into the, into the records of that church and figured out that a lot of these people are workers. Hmm. Um, and why? Why why are you, you know, why are they cheering on someone who's calling for the blood of other workers? So, you know, the story became more and more complicated. It started off in my mind as kind of like labor versus capital. And as I went further and further into it, I realized that there's a lot of different layers to this. And in fact, I mean, ethnicity is a huge one. Um, Skilled versus unskilled labor is a huge one Um, that the working class of our hope for imagination um what never really came together in Chicago in this period in the way that um you might imagine it would have that workers were not just fighting capital but they were fighting one another um so yeah I don't know that was one of one of a number of big kind of surprises in the course of my research
0: <laughs> yeah I remember reading uh the bit about the viaduct uh stuff in the book and just being horrified by uh some of the quotes that you yeah. pull out from those pastors that was out of control um <laughs> Uh, But one thing that really struck me, too, in the research and as you put it together is uh, being attentive to different minority voices in the history of labor and Christianity. Um, So two that I guess stuck out to me. One was uh, this woman, Maria Darker Winkoop. So uh, you quote her talking about wanting an overthrow of the credit system and, uh, you know, some pretty radical stuff. I liked that a lot. And then uh, the second guy that stuck out was Reverend Bird Wilkinson. Who was a black pastor who said Jesus preached communism, which I am all about. Uh, so, is that uh, is that attention um, the result of like just good, you know, historical practice, scholarly research, or do you find in your research that the history just kind of made that easy for you to pick up?
2: Yeah. Um, it wasn't easy, actually. No, I mean, I think, I think, you know, finding it's the, the easiest voices to find are the ones that are that are best represented in the book, which are kind of the labor aristocrats as as historians call them, these folks who are kind of in the in the leadership of the early unions and whatnot. They're they're the voices that you're going to find most um, in evidence in the historical record. I was really thrilled to find Maria Wincoop. She was someone that I I had. Uh, this is a woman, for those who haven't read the book, who um kind of this remarkable woman who in the early 1870s somehow got a, I never figured out how, she got a column in the Chicago Tribune where she wrote about labor <laughs> issues. And it's very pretty unusual for, for a woman to be writing, first of all, in the Tribune, which was really the businessman's paper. Um, but she's writing a really kind of pro-labor perspective with a strong emphasis on, uh, and in her columns you really hear a kind of strong lament of the ways that the churches have abandoned ordinary people um so you know finding her was was a real and then you know you started to follow her and and once you one of the things that's really fun about historical work is that it is kind of like detective work you know and so once you find a little clue you got to just chase every lead you can with that so I was looking for Maria Winkoop everywhere I found her family back in England and you know uh you know just trying to trying to turn up whatever you can but it's it is definitely a a, a lot of work to find someone like that um yeah and Bert wilkinson i mean i, I wish you know, he, Lucy Parsons, who's married to Albert Parsons, who's herself at least a mixed race. I mean, it's really hard to find those voices in late 19th century Chicago, probably because uh, there weren't very many African-Americans in Chicago during these years. Um, but also because, you know, they're just not as well represented in the historical, the documentary record. I mean, they're just harder voices to find. I know one of the one of the other kind of essays I wrote in graduate school was on the race ride of 1919. And... Um, really hard even at that later date to find manuscript sources on the african-american experience of that riot um a a friend of Mm -hmm. mine karen johnson who's at wheaton college she's got a book coming out on black interracial catholic interracialism in chicago and she found amazingly this this source on kind of uh a a black doctor who has a child experienced that riot it's it's going to be a fabulous book partly because she found that kind of stuff it's really tough to find uh, those kinds of sources, you know, they're just not, not as easy to uh, get to.
1: Um, so on that point, um, I mean, the book is, uh, I mean, it's a great history and a cool narrative for sure. What I, what I like most about the book though, is that it just has all these like really wild quotes, um, from different people that you just like, you literally don't hear <laughs> yeah. anywhere. Um, I don't know. I, in, in my undergrad, yeah. I took a class that was like on the history of, uh, like Christianity in America. And this is like, you know, all very new to me. Um, yeah. So he, there's yeah. a quote, though, that's from um, from from Reverend Bird Wilkinson. That is very good. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm going to read yeah. it because it's, it's, it's that good. Go for it. He says Christ went further than socialism. He preached and practiced communism. And then Wilkinson insisted there are no millionaires in heaven who have succeeded in, sus- in stealing the fairer portions and renting them out or in driving the poorer angels to the lower quarters. It's like some pretty radical yeah. stuff to say. And uh, part of, I think, American Christianity <laughs> that we, we don't pay attention to. Um Yeah, something that Dean and I were talking about a lot in this book and like we were surprised about is that there's like there's no source book in the world that just collects Christian leftist stuff from the labor movement. There's like it's just not anywhere to be found except in your book, which is I mean, like, good for you, corner corner of that market. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like what I guess what were some of the characters um, in this research, like what were they doing in this research that really stuck out to you? Or how, how did you track them down?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's what's so you know so that Bird Wilkinson quote. I mean, that reminds me a lot of this other exchange between this this guy who who wrote under the pen name Wheelbarrow. Um, he was a knight of labor and a worker who got into a kind of incredible exchange with this guy John Farwell. John Farwell was one of the big benefactors of Moody, um, kind of a really wealthy patron, you know, captain of industry, robber baron type guy, um, <clears throat> and also a pretty sort of. Traditional evangelical Christian who's supporting revivalism and whatnot, and uh, Farwell writes to the uh, Knights of Labor periodical, which is one of the best-read newspapers of the 1880s. He says, you know, yeah, you know, the Knights of Labor would benefit from reading. I think he says something like reading the four Gospels. Uh, and Wheelbarrow comes back at him, and they have this incredible exchange. They go back and forth, back and forth. But Wheelbarrow's like, you know. Look, I think actually that the Knights of Labor have read the Gospels. It's Mr. Farwell that needs to pick up the Gospels. And if you picked up the Gospels, you <laughs> would know is that he is working hard every single day to find himself on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, rich men will not make it. And 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 Mr. Farwell is richer than any man who lived in Judea at the time of Christ. Uh, <laughs> so who's, who's in touch with the scriptures? Um, I mean, that vein of working class belief and of... A kind of sharp-edged working-class retort to the complacent christianity of the gilded age where you know you've got these kind of gilded cathedrals and and big downtown sanctuaries where all the wealthy are getting together and and hearing from a very highly educated minister i mean one of the things that's so interesting um in religious history circles this guy david swing who shows up at a couple points in the book swing was a a modernist, and he's often been used in our uh, hi- you know history books to talk about the rise of liberal Protestantism. He's he's brought up on a heresy trial in the 1870s in the Presbyterian Church. Um, so, you know, when I came at this research for the first time, I thought, oh, surely someone like Swing's going to be on the side of labor. He's one of the liberals, right? Um, absolutely wrong. I mean, part of what was so fascinating is that a lot of the so-called liberal Protestants, these modernists who are, you know, bringing new interpretations of the Bible to bear, they are Incredibly anti-labor, partly because someone like Swing, if you look at who's in the pews of his church, it's all the fabulously wealthy. And he's their kind of dog and pony show, really smart preacher man who, you know, caters to their high class tastes. And he does it in part by he just goes after labor. So when when Swing dies shortly after the Pullman strike in 1894, the Railway Times, Eugene Deb's publication, just rips into him and his $10,000 bathroom on Lakeshore Drive. And, you know, if only Swing had actually preached the true <laughs> message of Christianity. Um, so, I mean, I, I just found everywhere I looked, I found that kind of vein of critique and a sense of, you know, the Wilkinson passage that you read fits into a much broader kind of radical working class vision of, of who Jesus was. And a lot of the battles that, that I'm I'm tracking here in the book are around the person of Jesus and, and what was Jesus about and working class people are insisting that Jesus is at least a worker. And in, in the case of radicals, they're insisting he was a, a radical. I love this stuff on the Haymarket wow, anarchists yeah. who, you know, have often been, you know, and, and they were in fact not themselves pious people, but, but they have a vision of Jesus as, uh, in some ways an inspiration for the work that they've done. And, and I love, you know, August Bees when he's, Going to be hung," says, "I got to die like Christ died." Um, and, and they see Christ in some sense as a model for their radical working class critique. Um, so that's just that's just everywhere in the documentary record, and 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 it wasn't at some level once you start to realize that you know you'll see it every, everywhere you go, everywhere you look. Yeah, it's it's so
1: wild and so heartening. I mean, just knowing that there are people out there like like that, there are people that are like that is. Um... I don't know. I think a boon to contemporary leftist Christians for sure. Um, yeah. Well, one of the other things that was that really stuck out to Dean and I um, was the very yeah. beginning of the book where you're talking about Labor Sunday. Like, we yeah. we were just like our minds were blown. Like, uh, yeah. we, we felt like yeah. it was just like too good to be true that there was actually something like this that happened liturgically in a church somewhere. Um, So, like, I mean, you're talking about, like, union members occupying the pulpit and, um, like, in the preacher's union. Could you tell us a little bit more about Labor Sunday and uh, (laughs) how cool that is?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Labor Sunday is how I start the book. And it's really it's I I think about it as labor's effort to evangelize the church Um, that in some sense there's, you know, part of the story of my book is the story of how working people bring this um, critique that they see as not coming from the outside but coming very much from the the heart of the christian tradition and uh you know <clears throat> labor sunday emerged out of uh efforts on on the part of the american federation of labor uh, which acknowledged that of course the churches especially in 1910 when it really gets gets off uh, off the ground the churches are an incredibly strategic place for labor to be kind of uh reaching out to. Um, and they're, they're important. They're not, you know, they don't have votes in Congress, but they have an ability to sway many more people. Um, and so, you know, AFL reaches out to churches and starts to to make inroads with a particular church, you know, all, really all across the different denominations. And for me, this is part of a, a story about how labor changes the church's minds about the union movement, that Um, really for a generation, the churches resist a working class vision of labor and Christianity as kind of, um, very much compatible. Um, but, but by the early 20th century, because working people are threatening to leave the churches, they really get the, the, the attention of both Protestant and Catholic ministers and, and church after church starts to issue these statements, pro-labor statements, um, and Labor Sunday is is part of that story. It's a story about how the churches slowly make a space, literally on Sunday morning once a year, for working people to preach the gospel as they as they understand it. This is a tradition that still actually is around today. It's 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 not nearly I uh, I don't think it has quite nearly the the pull or the sway that it did a hundred years ago. But I know in Chicago um, I did an event right around Labor Day with Interfaith Worker Justice, and they were in about. Hundred hundred or so churches in Chicago, um, but I mean, one of the things that's really notable about that is they're not in a lot of the largest churches. They're not in a lot of the, the you know the the, the reach uh, and their ability to get into particular religious contexts today is a lot more limited. I think. Yeah. And
1: uh, uh, after I read a little bit about Labor Sunday, I did I did Google it to see if anyone was still doing it, and uh, there is a there is a liturgy at the uh, United Church of Christ for Labor Sunday. And I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> But like yeah. interesting, but at the same time like unsurprising. I mean, the UCC being amongst like the like the most liberal of mainline Protestant churches these days. So I don't know, interesting.
2: Right. And I think, I think in some ways that's an example of. I mean, part of what's so fascinating to me about our uh, you know the with the way that these gilded ages relate is how. I mean, in in the book that I've written, I mean, I'm I'm trying to show how in some ways uh, a generation long working class movement yields of considerable institutional gains, um, you know, changing the church's mind at an official level. You get lots of statements, you get new church bodies looking at the problem of church and labor in a more sympathetic way, Uh, you get a Labor Sunday, et cetera, et cetera, and that's only going to grow as you head it, it toward the New Deal, I mean, by the time the New Deal Protestants and Catholics alike, I mean, you've got a lot of cases by that point where, you know, Catholic bishops are getting on the stage alongside major union leaders and saying, like, our cause is the same. Um, you know, Protestant ministers in the Federal Council of Churches who, you know, are, are casting Roosevelt's New Deal as the Sermon on the Mount, realized in practical form. And so... Part of what's so interesting is that none of that is ever recanted. None of that's ever um, repealed. You know, the church statements on labor are never, you know, done away with. They're still on the yeah. books uh, 2017. But, you know, we've got a situation today where, you know, 70 plus percent of Americans still identify as Christian. And you've got less than 7 percent of Americans in, uh, in private sector unions. So, I mean, that's a kind of striking example of how, um, you know, even though this stuff remains on the books, it's clearly not resonating at a deeper level the way that it once did.
0: Yeah, that is really fascinating. I was struck, especially in the book, by uh, your trope of competing Christianities. That's the thing that you kind of bring up a lot. And actually, maybe this is a good way to, like, get back to talk more about the Haymarket folks, um, who I think we should just spend more time on because they are so awesome and uh, important so one of the things that uh, i found most interesting was that kind of tension between like ministers and bishops etc the established church they have an idea of who jesus is what he's about uh, and then there's also witness to Christ outside of establishment Christianity, and that's understood by unions or radicals. So uh, maybe I'll just like read a little thing from August Beast that you uh, have in the book and we could talk about that. So yeah, uh, I pulled this out. He, he writes in a letter to his fiance before he uh, is killed saying, this is kind of long, but I think it's worth it. You'll remember the crucifixion of a young, bright, generous, and noble hearted Jew by the name of Jesus uh hopefully she remembers i guess and in connection with this incident you will likewise remember that a few days prior to his quote legal murder he had entered the temple of jerusalem where he found occupied the board of trade men of that city and when the jerusalem board of trade men saw their respectable business thus exposed by this quote foreign half-distracted wild-eyed ranting agitator Uh, And when they saw that his words were listened to eagerly by the people, they formed a conspiracy, drummed up some charges against the the lawless fiend, and crucified him as a felon. You'll readily see the analogy of this in our own case. Uh, And then you go on to say that the clergy did not see that analogy at all. (laughs) Um, So, can we, like, talk about that tension? Like, why is it that uh, the clergy wouldn't have seen that kind of an analogy um, and then also, you know, this seems like kind of a common strategy for labor to, like, pit Jesus against the way in which um, Christianity has defiled uh, itself or defiled Jesus in its establishment circles. Um, what did that strategy do for, like, organizers and for churches?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think on the one hand, why why don't the churches see that strategy? Why don't they see that, that uh, insight the way that uh, someone like Spees does? I mean, I think really... Part of the story here is a story about um, the churches which had been in the earlier 19th century kind of grown as a result of the democratization. This is what Nathan Hatch has argued in my field, you know, that, that as Christianity becomes more popular and more kind of less elite, it it grows in leaps and bounds. Uh, but by the time you get to the you know, 1870s, 1880s Chicago, um, there's kind of a calcification that's happened where um, you know, churches are are really like social clubs and and in many ways, they're functioning that way for wealthy Chicagoans. Um, and so the the kind of most prominent churches are full of um the wealthy o- only and and and, you know, Jane Adams, after the Pullman strike, writes about this way in which um, and we could again see probably parallels to our own moment where conversation is happening in particular places and other voices are not getting in. You know, the, the parlors of George Pullman's house were all, always open and, and hospitable to a certain class of person, but he's not hearing the, the concerns of others. Um, I think, you know, for people like uh, the kind of Protestant elite that Spees is, is referencing here, they, they can't imagine, they just cannot imagine that Jesus is on the side of the unions. Um, and, and it it just didn't seem plausible to them. I genuinely think that it wasn't as though they, they knew that Jesus was and they, they, uh, chose to cast a different vision. I think they just, they literally couldn't imagine it. Um, you know, I think working people on the other hand, um, and again, I, I want to stress that there are cleavages within the working class, but to the extent that working people come to see Jesus as a model for their own movements, um, it's because they have this experience of being on the other side, right? And the experience of oppression, the experience of um, being um, among the lowly. I think that experience, you know, both in the Christian tradition, but also in the history that I write. I mean, my, my sense is that um, institutions, churchly institutions, are inherently conservative um, and and slow to change. And that, and that change always comes, almost always, at least from the grassroots and it comes especially from people who um, have an experience of suffering and come to understand that experience through a Christian lens, and then who and this is the key piece that gets to what you're talking about, Dean, that they don't just um, I think what they're able to do, what the workers in my book are able to do and what other groups have been able to do is say, um, we're not a marginal, you know, we're not marginal to the tradition. Our experience is not marginal to the tradition. actually, our experience, has opened up a window onto the very heart of the tradition and we're gonna fight you about that. And that's what the workers in my book do is they say, we know what Christianity is and we know the churches have abandoned it. And in fact, if they hadn't abandoned it, we would be in there with them. But they've abandoned it. And so Jesus Christ is with us outside the church. And that the, the moral argue, that's the that's kind of the, the structure of the moral argument that they're making or the 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 argument vis-a-vis the tradition is that they own the tradition. Now the churches and, and the leaders of the churches um, really don't give a hoot about that argument. For 40 years, they listen. They, they know that that's what the workers are saying, and they're rebuffing it and rebuffing it. And, and it's only when workers threaten to leave that they get the, the, the attention of church leaders, because suddenly church leaders are saying, uh-oh, um, you know, we, we may not fully agree with these folks, but we're devastated at the, the very idea of, of a loss of cultural authority. And that, I mean, that's kind of the cynical piece to the story here, is it's not at the end of the day, um, I mean, we might think that workers won the moral argument. The church leaders, it's unclear that, very, that across the board that was their sense. What they do win is a kind of, um, they're, they're very effective at organizing, and they, and they organize in such a way and, and, and communicate a, a threat of, hey, we're out of here if you don't change your mind. And that's what, that's what gets traction,
1: it's just like I don't know. Sorry, it's just the the tension between labor and Christianity is so, um, it's interesting and definitely very dynamic. But it just seems like Christianity, like the institution that is the church, I suppose, is just always a reactionary yeah. force in this story. And uh, I don't know. It's hard to know what to do with that because I still like I still see that so much in my own my own experience and own life. So, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's it still I, happens. I
2: think this is. I mean, I think this is a relatively, I I feel pretty confident in this, that it's not that that the the institutions of the church or or the leaders of the church can never be agents of change because they can, but I think if you were to look, and I think not just in American history, but I think if you look even more broadly, you'll find that they are much more rarely the agents of, of change. And... Um, you know, people would say, "Well, maybe that's a good thing in the sense that you know, part of what the church is, needs to do is preserve a tradition that that is, in many ways, good." Um, mm-hmm. But it can also it can also be it's a it's a real struggle. And part of what's so fascinating to me about this too is even 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 for a generation after Labor Sunday is founded, you know, in the Methodist Church, um, I mean, this is this is so interesting to me. The the Methodists are you know imagine themselves as kind of like the founders of the social gospel. We're the people who it we're early adopters who accept it first, and yet, um, starting around the time that they is- issue this social creed, which is going to be taken up by the Federal Council of Churches, the Methodist Church finds itself um, in a labor dispute of its own, with its own with the workers in its own printing house, and um, they, the, the printers want a closed shop, a union shop, and the Methodists for 30 years resist and refuse them. And and at every – general, I mean part of what's so interesting is you do get some folks on the inside, church leaders, ministers, who are very sympathetic to the workers. And Harry Ward was one of them, and he's an early leader in the Federal Council of Churches as well. And he's going to all these labor leaders, and he's saying, I need you to tell me how is the Methodist church's hostile position toward the printer's union – affecting our outreach to working people. And he gets letters from major trade union leaders all over the country saying this thing. And he brings these letters to the General Conference in 1916 and says, look, this this position we've taken on the open shop in our own printing house is hurting our evangelism of the working class across the country. And guess what? He's voted down. He's voted down <laughs> because there are too many people in the General Conference who have, uh, you know, strong ties to a kind of corporate. So, I mean, that's that's the thing that um, is just ever-present. And I think it's now, that was especially true with Protestants, kind of the ties to corporate leaders in, in the first Gilded Age. But by the mid-20th and, and certainly in the late 20th, early 21st century, it's a, it's as much an issue, if not more of an issue, for Catholics um, who move into the middle sure. class and become wealthy. and And you see in the latter half of the 20th century, and this is a huge development in the history of, american christianity and especially as it relates to labor is that catholics who were um by the new deal era at least a pretty reliable um you know bulwark of pro-labor christianity in this country that's no longer the case i mean you've got really heated disputes within catholicism and a lot of folks who downplay the tradition who say ray novarum was for that period and not for the ages and um and so that's 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 a really serious obstacle for those who want to see a kind of revival of pro labor Christianity in the United States. Protestants have always been tough on this front. Catholics, you, you know, you would hope, um, and perhaps an influx of Latino Catholics, working class Latino Catholics will will help to shift the balance here. But I'm not optimistic, to be honest. I mean, I think there's a lot of really powerful white middle class Catholics in the suburbs who see this as not a Christian issue. Um, so. it's it's a tough tough situation
0: yeah it's funny that you say that because uh i'm catholic so i try to pay attention to what's going on these days and um it's weird because one interesting dynamic you pull out in the book is that even when there are ministers who seem to be on the side of labor ultimately capital is what keeps your lights on uh and if the workers are leaving your your uh parishes or churches um, you just it's natural to kind of court that wealth Uh, and then uh, unsurprisingly class interests are kind of what dictate what goes on in your church it's funny because in the catholic church i mean pope francis you know more than any pope of recent memory has been uh, pretty vocally critical of capitalism, vocally supportive of people who are marginalized by economic exploitation, etc. Um, you know, he's on the record as saying that communists are pretty good. That's, a, that's a, an amazing thing. I mean, the last two popes were arguably subtly and sometimes not so subtly pretty anti-communist in general. So... Um, The weird thing, though, is in a place like the United States, he's appointing some bishops and they seem pretty interesting. Uh, But for the most part, uh, it is those class interests that are going to be the biggest kind of threat to getting a a vision from the magisterium, even when it is pro labor on the ground, I guess. Uh, It it was just it was funny to read your book and kind of see um, that's the same sort of dynamic that's with at least the Catholic Church in the United States today. Like, I think you're right about that for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think it's 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 true in the Catholic case, it's true in the Protestant case. I mean, I was at this interfaith worker justice event over Labor Day weekend. Um, you know, one of the things that a number of, of folks in the room said, look, I'm a pastor at a really progressive mainline church, and you know, we can get really riled up about a lot of things, but we can't talk about labor. Hmm. Uh, right. um, and I think I think that there is a way in which this stuff uh you know, I, I think in, in higher ed, this is the case and, you know, when you start talking about labor, what you're talking about partly is um, is money and sustainability and people people do not want to go this way. And I think I think that in some ways, um, you know, this is this is one of the problems that the American left has had in in the last generation is, you know, how do we how do we talk about and how do we how do we fight for economic equality i mean that's that's sort of fallen out of the you know and, and bernie's trying to bring it back and whatnot but but i mean it has not been a central focus of the american um you know mainstream i guess left at least in in the last generation and uh and i think there are reasons for that because i think there are, there are really powerful folks who uh, fashion themselves liberal or progressive in some ways but who don't who don't see a revival of the the labor movement as a as a good thing, um, and who are not in favor of that, and so um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's 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 tough to know. I mean, is 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 there a, a revival of a pro labor Christianity of, of labor unions themselves? And the, I don't know. I mean, it seems it's hard to fathom that at this point. Um, I think we're in a pretty unpredictable moment, but um, yeah. there's a lot of work to be done on the ground. I get a lot of students here who come to my classes, and you know, we read we read this kind of material and and they've never even imagined that Christianity had anything to say about inequality, that Christianity had anything to say about labor. This just seems the, the minimum wage, these these all to them seem kind of under the realm of like, well, that's just economics. Or that's just the market. That, is, that is not what does that to, I don't understand what that has to do with my faith. I don't I don't you know, I don't see those connections. Mm-hmm. Um
1: I teach at a, I teach at a Christian school, and they don't even think that here. Like it's still beyond their it's not yeah. it's not within their cultural imaginations, yeah. I I guess at all.
2: Yeah, the American churches have done a better job, and I mean we have a lot of, of issues, and, you know, we're, we're, we see right now, and and this is another thorny thing that we're probably you know I don't have a lot of hope th- of working through in my lifetime, but I think at least race has been able to be cast in a theological lens, and and has is seen readily by many folks, not by everybody, but by many folks as a serious test of faithfulness, um, kind of economic issues, class issues, labor issues. I I think that you have, it's a lot of work just to come up to the point where you can kind of get people to see, Oh, this is related. you know, I just think that there's just a (laughs) lot of work that, that goes into that. And, um, and that is where it's really different than the period that my book is about where you do have, I mean, not, not every single person, but, but everybody knows that there, there is a movement afoot making a strong case that Christianity is on the side of, of the working people and, and that Christianity demands a kind of greater equality. I mean, that, that was, that was uh, I think, would have been known even by people who weren't fully in the, in the, in the throes of those debates. People knew what was going on. Um, I think now it's like we, we've kind of lost a sense of that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because so many kind of liberal progressive uh, Christians that are out there doing good things on a variety of other fronts, whether it's race or LGBT issues or whatever, a lot of them seem kind of like naively okay with criticizing capitalism. But I can't think of a single kind of like emergent church author, per se, that comes like readily to mind um, that would also uh, intentionally advocate like joining a union or being at a strike or Uh, You know, like real tangible, practical action. So they might recognize that capitalism as a system is bad, but they're like totally divorced from the ways in which uh, people have historically found, you know, ways to gain and, and kind of win small victories against that. I don't know, there's there's a really interesting, like, inadvertent list of rhetorical strategies in your book for Christians on the left, um, who were calling out, like, class-collaborating churches, uh, to put it a certain way. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, I was struck by that, like, um, you talk about uh, scab ministers, that was a good term, I feel like should uh, come back around, we should all be (laughs) talking about scab ministers, or, uh, like, some, some pastors themselves talked about applied Christianity as a way of arguing for socialism, which is also a very fun uh fun kind of term so uh reading the book i was just also thinking of the way in which uh there are there are all these union songs like iww's appropriation of hymns um or you know songs about jesus written by like woody guthrie or sung by pete Seeger and utah phillips like those kinds of folks um do you think those rhetorical strategies i mean christians are pretty good at entering into these symbolic imaginary worlds do you think those kinds of of practices, songs, uh, rhetorical strategies are able to appeal now? Or do you think that labor and Christianity are just like so disciplined by capital that they don't uh, connect as readily as they, they used to? I
2: think I I haven't given up hope. I think that, yeah, those, the the hope is in those sorts of strategies that, you know, laying claim to the tradition and, and with practices and songs and whatnot. I mean, I think, I think one of the big obstacles is um, there has been a very, very effective, um, and you, you were mentioning a moment ago, who you know, how many ministers or priests or whatnot do you know who will, you know, just uh, get up on Sunday morning and say, like, join the union? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, you don't hear that a lot. And I think that is because um, there's been such an effective PR campaign against unions as such, you know, so even if people can say, well... I, I, one thing I hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, back in that time, you know, the time in your book is about, unions were good, but now unions are bad, um, and and you know, you see that the the most recent uh, UAW attempt to organize a Nissan plant in Mississippi, where um, you know, just an unbelievable PR campaign against the UAW in that situation, um, and that's where that's where, and you know, and obviously this issue then intersects with other issues where you know, you get people in the churches will say, well, union support candidates that I don't agree with on other issues or whatnot. And so that, you know, um, these kind of wedge issues become, become again, a a factor. Um, I, I think that, you know, if, if my reading and and I'm not the only one that's been writing about this stuff, I mean, there have been uh, some other really, really important and and good books that have come out in the last generation, the last, excuse me, last 10 years on labor and Christianity and other moments in time, you know, the thirties, forties, fifties, uh, and and you can see how, at no time really was this uh, coming. I, I don't know. There have been moments, I guess, maybe in the in the '30s is really the moment where you get a lot of institutional top energy into the labor movement from the church, kind of church leaders. But most often, I mean, I think about Jared Rolls' book, *Spirit of Rebellion*, which is about Pentecostal revivals in the Boot Hill of Missouri and how they brought, um, you know, Pentecostal revivals sent, you know send both white and black believers into the tenant farmers union and you know this is all i mean you know i I edited a book with my friends chris and janine called the pew and the picket line and and that book is full of local examples of of kind of in in particular places in particular churches particular communities how some somehow you know somehow there was a vision that got cast that got that resonated deeply with the people and and something happened there I think that's still possible. Um, I haven't, I haven't given up on that possibility, and I do think that, um, especially in the, just in the last ten years, even since I I started writing this book, um, you know, we live in a time of possibility on these fronts. But it, yeah, there there are gigantic obstacles. So I mean, you know, you hope that at a local level, yeah, if people latch on to these rhetorical strategies, they latch on to um, you know particular kind of resources i mean that is the one thing that 21st century believers who uh want to fight for labor fight for economic quality have working for them is they do have these resources and traditions that were established 100 years ago by the kind of workers that are in my book um those folks had to kind of pioneer this thing and uh, now we we are the uh, we've inherited these traditions so we do have those resources to bring to bear but um, I don't know. I don't know. I think we'll see what happens. I, 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 trust that if, if a change is to come, it will start in places we've probably never heard of among people we've never heard of and, uh, you know, catch fire there and hopefully spread
1: the choir of the fire, Acquire the fire. Oh my gosh. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. That's a,
1: uh, if anyone's listening and doesn't get that joke, it's a youth conference. Uh,
2: <laughs> it's not a very good one.
0: What's up, but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's ways. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a good, like, inspiring note to end on. Uh, maybe there's good news. Yeah, sure. That's a good. <laughs> a good note. That's the that's the gospel after
2: <laughs> all. Maybe there's good news. <laughs> uh, that's
0: all right. That's hilarious.
2: Thanks for reading. Um, the book. it's cool. fun to talk to you guys about it. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. If there's more, uh, if you're interested in this stuff, I mean, there's there is some really good work that's been done in the last uh, few years on this stuff, and and um I'm working on this new book that's a little bit broader um uh, but looking at kind of uh, you know trying to retell the whole picture of social christianity as a as a tradition within you know american life that, of of christians who have seen the fight against inequality as uh, essential to faith not just like bonus points but as you know kind of at near the very heart of the tradition um so I'll be thinking about this stuff for uh, a good seven more years here. So if you want to talk more, I'd love to yeah, love to do it. Great.
0: Yeah, we'll have you back for sure. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on, Heath. This was a blast. Uh, super fun. The research is great. Uh, what you're doing out there is really important. Hopefully, uh, I think more Christians ought to read it. So, uh, yeah, go buy Heath's book. It is very good. Yeah, it's called,
1: <laughs> it's called Union Made. It's on Oxford University Press. It is good. Go buy it.
2: thanks so much for having me on
1: thanks a lot man Um, we'll talk to you later
0: thanks for listening please go buy and read Heath's book Union Made Uh, it's full of a bunch of great stuff that we couldn't get to and Christians in America really need to get in touch with what labor history we have Um, there's both like uh, more than you'd think and also less than we need so a pretty cool thing to read, I think. Uh in the meantime, like us on Facebook, get at us on Twitter, drop us an iTunes review, tell your pastor about us, bring us to your youth group, uh help us get the word out. Um also go check out the latest episode of Revolutionary Left Radio. At Rev Left Radio on Twitter. If you want to support us financially, especially because we put all these episodes together on top of our other jobs and lives, Matt's teaching seven classes and he has a kid and he's married and
1: it's too uh, many he's guys.
0: St- he, he's still doing it. He's still every week putting this how thing together. Gonna, uh, how am I going to keep affording all this Lacroix that I drink? <laughs> put that Lacroix on Matt's table. it's really important. <laughs> um, If you want to support us financially, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Uh, A lot of other very cool people do. So if you want to be like them, you know how to do it. It's not that hard. You just got to buy your way in like every other way of being cool. Um, Lastly, we have a newsletter called The Magnifesto, which you can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash themagnificast. And there we collect some articles and book quotes and other stuff related to Christianity and the left. Um, we do a little like Christianity and Socialism 101 in each issue of it, so I don't know. Think of it as your weekly Red Christian devotional. Um, thanks again, Heath, for coming on. This was super fun. We're going to let the illogical spoon play us out, and we'll see you guys next week.
3: I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Relaxing. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, Besides, what else are you gonna do.